Hello and welcome to episode 83 of Herpetological Highlights. I am Ben Marshall and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major. And we have an episode for you today about... What do you call this? Like human-snake interaction, I suppose? It's not necessarily conflict, but it is how uh, people and snakes interact slash not even drive but it i don't know maybe that's broad enough because they're, they're two quite different papers yeah i think there's definitely a vein of human snake interaction in the first one although it's not the sort of principal uh finding but definitely for the second one it's definitely about people and snakes and how interventions that people have with each other could potentially improve the situation for those that are likely to come into contact with venomous snakes yeah and prob- probably the snakes themselves too You'd think so, yeah. I feel like educating people about snakes has positive externalities for snakes themselves because, at least in the paper we're going to talk about, one of the main pieces of guidance is if you're bitten by a snake, don't smash the snake, which is mm-hmm. obviously going to be a win for snakes. I mean, that's, that's, that's advice to live by, isn't it? Just in general, don't smash any animals unless you really feel like you absolutely have to. If it's a necessity, bash away. But there's very few situations in which you can really justify killing things. <laughs> Next to zero, really. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, yeah. So, yeah, two cool papers about different facets of venomous snakes. The first of which is kind of much more about venomous snake evolution, specifically to do with spitting cobras. And then, yeah, the human outcomes of when said venomous snakes elect to bite. So should we get stuck into the first one? Yeah. Um, would you Would you like to take take charge of this awful list that's... Do you think we should read them all out? Yeah. See how quickly you can do it. Okay, uh, this is by Kazan, Dijan, Petras, Robinson, Van Teel, Green, Arbuckle, Barlow, Carter, Wouters, Whiteley, Wagstaff, Arias, Albalesco, Plattenberg, Lang. Hi, Anthony. Hall, Heap, Penrinlow, McCabe, Ainsworth, De Silva, Doris Stein, Richardson, Gutierrez, Calvetti, Harrison, Vetter, Untime, Worcester, and Casewell. Exactly, and now in editing, I'll just speed that up a wee bit. Yeah, yeah. We got some. Uh, we've got some friends and uh, supervisors, past and present, in this uh, author selection too, which is always nice. So, hello, if we know you. Um, but yeah, really, <laughs> really cool paper. Uh, essentially, twenty well, twenty one science. Twenty twenty one science. Mm-hmm. It's published in Science in twenty twenty one. Convergent evolution of pain-inducing defensive venom compounds in spitting cobras. So this is that thing where different animals in different places evolve the same answers to the same problems. So it's the reason, I think like the most common example which most people can relate to is green tree pythons and Amazon tree boas. They're from different sides of the planet, but they look the same because they do the same stuff for the most part. They're green, they hang around in trees. They eat birds and mammals, and they also even have the same ontogenetic color change where the babies go from being very vivid and bright to being, well, in the case of, uh, to being um, just plain green adults with some like white markings. But yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're very similar, despite the fact that they are separated by some pretty serious oceans. Yeah, yeah, there's, there's, I don't know if that's, that's number one go-to example of convergent evolution, but it's a very nice one. It is a nice one. Because I mean... One. I think echidna and hedgehog is another one on a you know sp- spiky little mammal that eats bugs. Yep, check. But completely different lineages. 
Um, but I think in previous episodes we've discussed how convergent evolution can operate on different scales too. So you've got something like the pythons or the echidnas and hedgehogs, which are, in terms of the animal themselves, relatively macro. It's, it's how they're looking outwardly. But there are also opportunities for convergent evolution on a more, uh, well, a smaller scale um, with their responses to, oh, what's that? Toad toxin. Yeah. So that's another instance of convergent evolution, but in a, uh, within an animal as opposed to something outwardly but uh, that's the real trick is being able to identify what's a convergent trait and what is a trait which suggests that they're closely related or not because because you have this opportunity for repeated uh, repeated evolution of the same sort of thing um, it's pretty awesome and it's pretty awesome they they uh, right at the beginning of this paper they cite um, John Losos, Losos, his book. Um, yeah, Improbable Destinies, How Predictable is Evolution, which is a great book all about convergent evolution. Uh, Losos has done a lot of work on Anolis lizards and using them as like a model group to explore convergent evolution. There's a lot of great examples and details about how it operates and how people have managed to work out what's going on regarding it and in those lizards in that book. Highly recommended. Yeah, so we're talking specifically about the convergent evolution of pain-inducing defensive venom components. So probably some important background before we talk about this in much more detail is that spitting cobras have modified holes in the front of their fangs which allow for them to spit. Normally the hole where venom comes out of the fang is quite elongate, but in spitting cobras it's... um, much sort of um it's less tall as you look at it it's uh shorter restricted yeah, yeah it's restricted more, and that more, means that uh, circular it's not quite circular but it's much closer to circular okay. than than the it's non than non-spitting counterparts are and uh, the hole means that the snake can force venom to be projected accurately towards the eye of an aggressor and the idea is that they spit this venom instead of uh well they also use it for uh, prey they also subjugation. Use yeah, for prey <laughs> subjugation. Yeah, good word. But they, it has this dual purpose where they can also spit it into the face of aggressors and it causes pain in the eyes as well as inflammation. And if you leave it untreated, it can actually lead to the loss of eyesight. So, so cobras are either injecting their venom when they bite or they are squirting it at the eyes of their predators. And they've been doing this for quite a long time. So before the cobras split into the groups we know today and the groups we're going to talk about. Their ancestral state was a condition where they were injecting venom through their fangs and they were using these cytotoxic three-finger toxins, which is a bit of a mouthful, but they are the most abundant toxins in the venom of cobras. And these are toxins which damage and kill cells, right? So they're causing cell damage, which is great if you're eating an animal you know, you bite into it and your venom starts to cause cell damage. That's a good way to take out your prey and allow it to be more easily consumed. But at some point along the line, cobras began to spit. And the question is, how long have cobras been spitting? Well, spitting originated separately 
Uh, it evolved independently in all three of the lineages we're going to be talking about in this paper. It evolved in African spitting cobras uh, between six and 10 million years ago. And it evolved in Asian spitting cobras between 2.5 and 4.2 million years ago. So they've been spitting for quite a long time. Uh, in Hemocartus, which is the third group, the ring cows, they're not exactly sure when they began to spit, but they know that it was less than 17 million years ago after they diverged from the true cobras. So you've got these three groups which are all independently spitting and they have these toxins which damage and kill cells. So mm-hmm. it sounds like it might be a good thing to squirt in someone's eye if they're threatening you, these cell damaging toxins. But in fact, when they looked at the abundance of these uh, cytotoxic three-finger toxins between spitting and non-spitting species, there wasn't much difference. So the what they saw was that whether or not they're spitting, they all had large volumes of these cytotoxic three-finger toxins. So it wasn't as simple as the spitting cobras have a major different component in their venom. You know, the most abundant component in their venom isn't different depending on whether you spit or you not or you don't. Yeah, and the, the, those two different, the, the non-spitting versus spitting cobras, the venom seems to have very similar uh, impacts on prey as well. Like they are operating very, very similarly when it comes to prey subjugation. So if there right. is something different in, is there a difference in that venom? It is something separate from the free finger toxin, partly because it evolved before the spitting, but also because you've seen the same uh, outcome when it comes to prey subjugation. Or at least that's the implication. Exactly. So if all of these snakes, spitting or not, have similar components to their venom, at least the major component is similar, these cytotoxic three-finger toxins, what is it then that's causing the pain when the venom is squirted into the eyes of the aggressors? And in order to find that out, they separated out the different components of venom and they repeated these experiments they were doing on mouse neurons, mouse neurons, to see which component of spitter venom was actually causing the pain. And what they did was they separated out each individual component of the venom, or at least, you know, the ones that were in large, um, the ones that were very abundant and, you know, common. Common? The ones that were more abundant, I guess you should say. Well, and, well, common in the sense that they occurred in multiple spitting cobra species, right? If it is a component which is linked to spitting, then it should, by sort of necessity, be connected to you know, appear in all spitting cobra venoms. Otherwise, it it wouldn't. <laughs> it, it it's not connected to spitting, right? Exactly right. So what they wanted so to do to, something. to see which of these things was causing the pain. So they had some mouse neurons, which are available over the internet, separated from the mice, and they added uh, these different components to these mouse neurons to see which ones were actually causing them to react most noticeably. So which mm-hmm. one of these things would actually get mouse pain neurons firing most aggressively and then by looking at that you could presumably tell right. which one of these different uh, features of the venom was actually causing the pain but what they found was that uh, none of them caused as much pain individually as the whole venom did from the cobras which could spit so that led them to believe that okay it's not as simple as the cobras which spit have some components of their venom which causes pain it's in fact some kind of synergistic effect of multiple bits of venom yeah yeah it's like an emergent property right you could it's greater than the sum of its parts sort of situation 
Exactly. Yeah. So yeah. what? So then the question was, okay, well, which one of these different components is it that the spitting cobras have got, which are allowing them to cause so much pain? And their attention turned to phospholipase A2 or PLA2 activity. So PLA2s are these elements of venom which are usually um, enzymatic in their action. So they basically have lots of different cell targets and modes of action depending on the situation but the important thing is that they're frequently catalysts in other reactions within snake venoms so and in um, nature more widely so what happens is when this catalyst is added to the cytotoxic three finger toxins so when you combine cytotoxic three finger toxins with PLA2s and put them on the mouse neurons suddenly a lot more pain Mm -hmm. which is I mean, it's important to to draw attention to the why pain is is being focused on so heavily here. I don't think we've touched on it. There's okay. It is not a prey subjugation thing you're dealing with. It is a got to get this predator or aggressor away from me. And okay, one way is to disable said predator, but that might require an incredible amount of venom and very fast acting venom. I so it's quite uh, quite a lot of effort and probably quite difficult to do plus you know it might be sort of too late if the predator's already that close to 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 level a bite or to level enough venom on target to make it injured enough to debilitate it so pains is sort of a nice shortcut where you can make the cost of attempting to predate you know a cobra itself uh seem a lot higher than than the damage actually being done. It is a, a a deterrent more than anything. Combine that with the the prominence of hooding with these cobras, you have a very front heavy uh, defensive show with a bit of uh, well with a lot of pain to back it up. That's that's going to be a whole lot more effective than a just a visual deterrent with the hooding followed up by a bite which is going to cause damage but potentially not be as painful. That might be too late for the cobra at that point. Mm-hmm. Yep. So that that pain angle is important to really act act early and act prior to any damages done to to the snake. Yep. And what they found was that in these cobras which spit, there were much more of these PLA twos which have this potentiating effect and are probably crucial in causing the pain. Which, as you say, has that effect when the cobra spits its venom, bang, hits the eyes, and it's very immediate. Just time to go this is not a good idea yeah and uh, if you look on youtube there are videos of human beings willingly taking shots to the eye from various spitting cobras if you're why why well that's a good question i mean i'm what would the human condition remains yeah, a mystery I, to me but that's that seems that seems why would people do that as a even yeah, more bamboo subject for a different podcast but <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it's very stupid. But yeah, you can go and see. And sure enough, I mean, there was one video I watched um, where this guy's got a spitting... He's got a black spitting cobra in South Africa and he's convinced his mate to get spat in the eye. And um, yeah, I mean, his eyes swell up. They go really red. It looks deeply unpleasant. And that's all it would take for any predator really to be dissuaded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all about that cost risk sort of weighing up and if if you can pro- I mean think about last episode we were talking about just sort of spooking a predator enough you know catching them off guard this is the same sort of circumstance all you have to do is get that initial uh, hesitation 
for enough enough of a window to get away something that is super pain inducing let alone aimed at aimed at eyes which is you know visuals that's how people are or predators are going to be going for the snake it's it's going to be super effective right i mean <laughs> It's real. And the perfect. key sort of interesting finding here, as we were talking about convergent evolution earlier, is that all three of these lineages of snakes have independently evolved spitting, and then they've also independently yes. evolved these high levels of PLA2s to affect the pain causing uh, effect same. of the cytotoxic three finger toxins. Yeah, so the same base toxin they had that was, you know, an ancestral toxin, but they've all come up with the same solution for turning that into something that is hyper pain inducing. Exactly. Yeah. And that kind of leads us onto the question, why did this behavior evolve? I mean, we're obviously talking about predation and we're talking about snakes, which are put in a perilous position facing off against uh, an aggressor. Right. And, you know, it, it's, it's not a, it's not a predatory uh, apparatus for the snake. They're not using it in predation of creatures. They're not spitting and blinding a rat and then going after the rat. No, they're definitely not doing that. And the yeah. question is, what are they spitting at? And one one justification for the evolution of this spitting is that it stops snakes from being trampled by large herbivores, which, you know, you could kind of see that. I mean, you've got snakes interacting with, I don't know, say a wildebeest, and the wildebeest could learn that a hooded snake could mean, ow, sore eyes, and they'll eventually stop walking near areas where they see those. But it seems a little bit tenuous. Or, or even just not even learning just having that response of being spat in the eye so it leaves you know before it gets stepped on before it even comes yeah. close hence the the ranged uh ability of the snake yeah exactly that's but you know it's, it's 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 counterpoint rattlesnake sort of stuff right instead of rattling it's it's spitting in the eyes yeah yeah i mean the end result would hopefully be the same if that was in fact the reason for the behavior to evolve but the thing is with large herbivores is that their eyes are on the sides of their head so yeah some of these papers where they it's hard to spit yeah some of these papers where <laughs> they look at the um spitting accuracy of these cobras they're using sort of um targets shaped more like a human face with eyes on front and they do seem to be very good at shooting mm -hmm. at that another reason where maybe this doesn't adequately explain the evolution of this trait is that a lot of the time some of these species are found in forested environments and you're not likely to have to avoid large herbivores trampling on you in a forest environment so much as you are in savannas so yeah i'm not super convinced with the forest dwelling bit because there are large species that would step on a snake in forests i mean you know you've got guar you've got elephant you've got the tapir, oh, I suppose tapirs have quite squishy feet, but you know you've even got things like uh, like decent sized forest pigs and stuff, and decent sized deer and you know samba deer and things. They're not they're not tiny. That would cause damage to a snake being stepped upon by even a, a smaller ungulate. So I'm not super convinced when he's saying there aren't. That yes, there is a reduced chance for sure, but mm. enough enough to enough to cause convergent evolution yeah all right I, I get that that's needing an additional push mm. but i'm that there are opportunities in in the forest yeah for sure. i suppose the other thing about a forest environment is maybe it'd be easier to find an escape route that didn't require the defensive displays yes you could just sort of yes. go under some tree roots and you wouldn't get stood under on. some roots or something along those lines that yeah there's that added level of uh low 
level uh, sort of habitat complexity with with little crannies and things to dodge away into for sure yeah no yeah but i agree with you like that is probably the one the one thing which raises an eyebrow um and it's not to say that that isn't a, a cause for the evolution of this but the authors of this paper posit a different theory which i think is very juicy and i do enjoy and they suggest yeah. that the evolution of <laughs> spitting could be because of bipedal apes aka oh humans but not humans then hominins hominins and the reason that they've suggested this is not only i mean we've talked on the podcast before we know that human beings and venomous snakes have quite a um complicated and uh interesting evolutionary history where we're really good at spotting snakes um you know monkeys and um, apes are inclined to smash with stones uh snakes preeminently before preeminently uh they're kind predominantly? of pardon what well, i'm trying to say like before as a as a sort of precautionary measure they'll smash snakes just because they're not even in direct threat ah. from the snakes they'll just smash them just in case which is something yeah, that human yeah, beings yeah. there is a, a preemptive strike preemptive strike that's it and yeah. the other evidence for this is that african spitting cobras uh, diverged as recently as 6.7 million years ago, as we said earlier. And that is very soon after the divergence of hominins from Pan. So, um, yeah, hominins were first evolving from chimpanzees and bonobos, or at least from their well, common not ancestor. from chimpanzees. And, yeah, from their common yeah. ancestor. <laughs> Important note. Yeah. Uh, and that was around 7 million years ago. So, you know, it does suggest... There's a very close time window there in Africa. And similarly, the origin of Asian spitters, which we said was around two and a half million years ago, seems to be around the same time as Homo erectus, one of our now extinct close relatives, arrived in Asia. So there's these kind of two similar evolutions occurring in different places, which then seem to coincide closely mm -hmm. afterwards with the evolution of spitting in these spitting cobras. And we can't say that for sure. But what we can say is that snakes, which spit venom, have independently evolved very similar concoctions to cause eye pain and deter predation. And these things did occur shortly after the arrival of bipedal troublemakers very similar to ourselves. Yeah. Yeah, and that that second point where the <laughs> remaining relatives of these bipedal troublemakers remain very sensitive, both uh, behaviorally, uh, neurologically, and culturally. Like, well, I suppose both those. Yes, culturally too, to snakes, and that's something that we still feel today, even though we have more opportunities to relieve or mitigate those pressures presented by venomous snakes. Mm. So I think, yeah, overall, that is the take-home message, isn't it? Um, you know, pain causing is a deliberate evolutionary yep. thing in spitting cobras. And yep. they've all um, evolved to do it in a very similar way, despite having to do so independently, mm -hmm. which is just overall fascinating. And I love the implication of, uh, yeah, bipedal apes in all of it. It's just fascinating. There is... There is a lovely, um, I don't know what the right word is, but it, it feels like it's two sides of the same coin sort of thing of snakes driving our evolution, us driving snake evolution. Because the bit that we haven't mentioned all that much is 
uh, previous work showing how spitting and hooding displays and, and the I think it was a different patterning on, on hoods are, are connected in different ways too so there is this added visual show associated with the spitting which is again syncing up with uh, your your bipedal ape uh, troublemakers as you put it so I I do like this this snakes pushing us us pushing snakes but both becoming sort of coming up with solutions to problems in different ways it, it's really fascinating yeah i was gonna say i just think like next time now if you're a human being who gets spat in the eyes by a cobra don't just think oh my eyes they hurt stop take pause and think this is the conclusion of 17 million years of evolution this is exactly yeah. what this venom was intended for and just try and enjoy the experience and, and to the point it had a very you know potentially beneficial impact on on humans with the sort of push to become uh smarter to be able to spot snakes faster and things potentially quite right? possibly there's, there's that mm. you know be be the best human because of having to avoid snakes so from the intertwined evolution of humans and snakes to well some of the issues ways, ways to mitigate yeah. This this ongoing ongoing sort of aminosity, aminosity, aminosity. Animosity. Yeah. Yeah. So before it was it was snakes having to to counter the pressure that perhaps our ancestors were putting on them. They're still putting pressure on us and vice versa now, but the we have more options available to us. We are not reliant on a uh, <laughs> survival of the fittest wait for evolution to help us out sort of situation we have more options and uh, that's exactly what our next paper's getting into is I'm not waiting for evolution we, we can we can mitigate this now and we can mitigate it pretty pretty effectively <laughs> so what do we have we have a paper in plus one. Is it plus one or is it the neglected? Yeah, plus neglected tropical diseases. Published in 2020. Uh, Venomous snake bites. Rapid action saves lives. A multifaceted community education program increases awareness about snakes and snake bites among the rural population of Tamil Nadu, India. Yeah, this one is by Samuel Shinaraju Williams, uh, Pikamithu Subario Vayapuri, Arumagam Vayapuri, Baksh Patel, Trim, Duncombe, and Vayapuri. 2020. Then yeah. the snake bites so, rapid action saves lives. Did you already read this out? A multiple... Fa- <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, cool. Everybody knows that snake bite is a big issue. Yes. You know, we, we are talking about Hundreds of thousands of bites, uh, well, millions of bites, actually, right? And hundreds of thousands of deaths and countless more uh, injuries to the point of, you know... Serious disabilities. Serious, serious injuries and ongoing sort of morbidity, yeah? Uh, it's it's a problem that needs solving. What I think has been lacking, certainly in terms of uh, science and sort of evidence building is we've got lots of ideas on how to mitigate snake bite. Uh, some of them 
can't be implemented as, as quickly because of sort of lack of funds and things and, and, and where these where these snake bites are occurring. It is much a uh, social issue as it is a wildlife conflict issue, yeah? But uh, what's really... What I've been wanting to see for a long time is this convincing link between education and lowering snake bite instances. Like it's a very logical train of thought, right? If, if people know uh, how to avoid snake bite and how best to treat snake bite, that should lower the uh, burden of snake bite overall. But actual well-compiled, well-documented evidence for that, connecting all the education efforts to the actual reduction in snake bite, I feel hasn't been as abundant as people proposing those education solutions. I feel like there's been a mismatch. I feel like that... You know, I'm not fully... That is the case in so much of what humans do, though, isn't it? I mean, it's very... It is! Nothing, not to take away from people who are pursuing uh, educational campaigns in places where snake bite no, is no, an no, issue, because no. it is obviously... No, like not at all. Remarkably important work. But it's like, it's kind of akin to the monitoring after you translocate animals. It's just, it's yes. not as easy to get the information afterwards and make sure, well, not even make sure, just see how well it's worked because it requires well, the, all these the extra steps. The point is, is, exactly, you don't want to be wasting resources on something which isn't that beneficial when really you could throw all those resources in a solution that you know works and actually get the reduction in snake bite you want. It's so important to have these... I mean, this is essentially what this paper does. I mean, you're probably inferring it by what I'm saying. They basically, short, long story short, massive campaign to educate people. Massive campaign. Uh, and it reduces snake bite. Like, yeah. with that connection. Um, a lot of stuff you'll see is saying, yep, yeah, People need more education. People need more this. They need more that. But there isn't the uh, data alongside it to say how much effort was put in and the actual realized outcomes of reduced snake bite. This paper does it all, as far as I can tell. It's it's fantastic. I, I think it's absolutely brilliant. It's one of the... It, it's It's been a missing... Well, not really a missing part of the puzzle, but it. I haven't seen it done so compellingly as this paper does no, um and certainly not to this scale i mean right the scale too it is it is remarkable in the discussion they've got this little caveat of like hey don't don't generalize beyond the sample this night might not work everywhere and like, absolutely true that's that's you should never be generalizing too far outside of the sample without controlling for things um but what a remarkable sample it's it's the entire... They, they're doing this education program across the entire province of uh, Tamil Nadu, which... How many people live there? Yeah. They, 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 they sort of, like, managed to reach 10% of the entire population. Close to, and yeah. And they do this all on a budget of £25,000. I just... I'm amazed. I'm, I'm, I'm in awe of the amount of effort that's gone into gone into this this yeah. this uh this work when they divulge the cost of it all up twenty five thousand, you just think geez the things that companies in this country spend twenty five thousand. tiny on. yeah and yet, yeah yeah i mean you know people you could just uh, a car yeah yeah <laughs> yeah so <laughs> tamil nadu's this, able to afford, but... this uh province in southern india uh 
it's got you asked about the population population is 67 yeah. million people in 2012 so probably more today so 67 million you're talking pushing the population of the uk yep yeah what what, what are we here in uk 70 71 72 something like that if you say so i don't know so you're but my point is that this is a study uh a a campaign which is national by other standards yeah it's massive it's massive yeah and like you say i mean just briefly what they did it was a campaign comprising leaflets and posters there was an informational video they did a load of assemblies in schools both primary and secondary and higher uh, education so colleges and universities there was also a facebook page and through their efforts it kind of snowballed and other news agencies both print and online media picked up the message and disseminated it even more widely and i mean yeah they did just talking about the assemblies alone, they did assemblies to over 50,000 students in one year. Um, so, you know, this was a serious, serious effort and everyone they interacted mm-hmm. with, they encouraged to go away and take the message to other people that they knew, giving them leaflets and things like that. And so yep. through all these various media forms and massive outreach efforts, as you said, they managed to reach close to 10% of the population of Tamil Nadu. So, yeah, that's like nearly 6 million people. Six, seven million people. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible numbers. I mean, it's, it's this, this multi, uh, I guess multi, multi target approach. Cause you, you're talking, okay. So you've got school children, uh, sort of everyday folk via their, their flyers and, and leaflets and in public spaces and, and news and things. But they also had a very targeted effort for, uh, health practitioners as well. Yep. So you're coming at it from both angles, not, just people on the ground who are getting bitten are going to be more aware of what to do when being bitten. But also when they go see a professional, the professional is more likely to know what to do and to do it quicker with less sort of doubt and hesitation than uh, they would have before as well. Yep. Yep. And it sticks, you know, the, all the time they're doing this, they're, they're sort of having these questionnaires of asking people their their attitudes and opinions on on snakebite and their their answers to it and then having people sort of repeat these these questionnaires throughout this intervention and a year afterwards too so they're testing this idea of how are people reten- uh, how are people's retention how are people remembering the message provided during this campaign even a year down the line and uh, both for the rural communities where they did this and the school children it's pretty remarkable. It's like upwards of ninety percent in most cases of people remembering and, and remembering the correct responses. Yeah. Okay, you've got this like are they just saying it sort of thing. But uh if people are aware of it and and they trust the people giving this information and providing these solutions, then there's no reason to think that that knowledge doesn't translate into the correct Uh, response when bitten by a snake. Yeah, and one thing for me that was really interesting, because obviously you hear that these uh, ideas about snake bite are, you know, the kind of um, traditional healers and traditional methods to treat Mm -hmm. snake bite. You hear that they're widespread, but without numbers in front of you, you kind of don't really get an impression of how many people actually believe these things. And so... They, like you said, they were doing a lot of stuff with rural populations where they'd go and give a presentation. If it was daytime, they'd just chill, do a little talk, and then they'd answer questions. And if it was the evening, they'd show them the documentary which they'd made, which was 20 minutes about snake bite. 
And they were doing the surveys alongside. And prior to any of the educational materials that uh, the authors of this paper and their team disseminated, it was 90% of people in rural areas believed that uh, various plant extracts and other things from traditional healers were actually effective treatments against snake bite and other venomous bites. And only 10% said that they would seek immediate medical attention. Those numbers... You know, 10% of people being willing to go to hospital for a snake bite and 90% of people believing wholeheartedly that uh, traditional healers will actually help their snake bite related mm-hmm. ailments. That to me was quite surprising. Um, but as you said, you know, they did the thing a year later on, they asked people and 85% of them correctly answered the questions regarding snake bites. So, you know, that's a seriously massive turnaround for a large portion of people. And obviously there's a trickle down from them telling their friends and things like that. But just the... Well, and and a shift in attitudes and, and normalizing uh, a response to snake bite. Like we're we're talking about a a year long campaign, and then testing what happens after that year. A year isn't actually that long for things to sort of bed in. You know, that's 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 not much. <laughs> no, but I think it shows. It shows not only that they were obviously targeting their advice well and they'd got it down, you know, they'd kind of filtered it down to the key messages which were very effectively received, but also, you know, people are keen to learn about these things and they're obviously treating this as important. So at some level, there is definitely this awareness of um, the importance. And, you know, if you give people the information, they're more than capable of, you know, storing it and reciting it back to you a year later and obviously, you know, including it in their own behaviours. And that's that is that's the key though that you, you do have uh the people do have access to act on correct information too i mean it's it's one thing to know what to do it's another thing to be able to do that you know or afford to do that or whatever so the question there's only half the battle because then you've got this this thing of okay people are saying they'll do better are they actually and that's the real, real kicker in this paper is coming back with the hospital yeah, data. That's what sets it apart. And showing that it is also, it's also working on the ground in terms of, of actually numbers of bites are even down, right? Yeah. So you had 291 bites in 2018 and then 2019 after the intervention, after this, this whole campaign, you've got 223 bites mm. And that's just bites. I'd be hesitant that's, to... That could um, be fluctuating up and down. I'd be hesitant to ascribe... So maybe 70 from one year to another. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd be hesitant to ascribe the reducing bites to this because it could have just been the wet, the weather. But still... You, well, right, okay. So there is some random variation from year to year that could obscure that 70. Mm. But part of the campaign was, was people recognising venomous snakes from non-venomous snakes. And one of the most worrying... Uh, misidentifications was this the Indian crate to one of the wolf snake species because you can imagine a situation where oh it's a wolf snake don't worry about it pick it up get tagged not even feeling that much of an impact because it's a neurotoxin by the time you know something's wrong it's too late sort of situation so if that 70 is coming from the campaign with with a better ID of snakes then that 70 is still a oh, big absolutely. deal. And it was other things like um, a much higher proportion of people were arriving at the hospital in under four hours than 
the previous yeah. year. That was massive. So that's a key message. Get to the hospital quickly. Was well, it's jumping from like 60% of people to 95% I mean, that of is people. huge. And another thing was the people who arrived at the hospital having yeah. sought other treatment, other intervention first. So that's, you know, traditional healers. So quite often what people will do is they'll try the traditional medicine approaches because they're cheaper, more easily wait, accessible. delay. Yeah. And then they yeah. wait until it's a medical emergency and go to hospital. So that's a big problem. Well, right. yeah, that reduced massively. Uh, it went from 60-something to 90-something percent of people were arriving at hospital with hospital as their first port of call after being bitten by a snake, mm-hmm. which is just like, that's that's fantastic, isn't it? Yeah, you see the shifts of the, the times to hospital and it's incredible. The number of bites... So the 2018 bites, you're talking like, what's that looking at? Like 50, 60 arriving within an hour. 2019, 160 plus bites arriving within an hour. Like it's a complete sea change in the the rate people are getting to hospitals because they know that's the best solution to to mitigate snake bite damage. And all of this for £25,000. Yeah. And it's, you know... It is the £25,000 that's making the difference here. Okay, maybe not in numbers of bites, but in terms of that shift in behaviour, I think they were saying that all the people that got there within four hours were aware of the campaign, I believe. It was one of the early, earlier um, time intervals. Basically, everybody that arrived had, had seen the campaign in some fashion. So that's a pretty good indication that they were reaching a lot of people and that it was uh, actually being connected to some sort of behavioural shift. That's, I mean, that's remarkable. It is remarkable. And it, uh, yeah, it's really heartening to read because, you know, I don't know, having watched some of these snakebite documentaries and, you know, the fact that in rural areas in India and other parts of, um, well, Southeast Asia and, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa is the other major sort of uh, hotspot. You know, people have Mm -hmm. to work in the field. You know, they're going to come into contact with snakes. But their mortality and morbidity can be so dramatically reduced by just making the effort to get a few key phrases to people. And, you know, they'll remember it, no drama, and they'll act on it. So, like, really now, given the fact that this is classified by the World Health Organization as a neglected tropical disease, if for 25 grand you can dramatically change the perspectives of people in an entire state like there's absolutely no excuse for not rolling this out everywhere yeah i mean there's obviously going to be uh quite a concerted effort to shift uh you know i feel like one of the reasons this is probably so effective is because of the effort taken to uh make it applicable to this dislocation you know, so applying it to some some other location, you are going to need to twist things oh, a course, little bit yeah. to to have the messages resonate to the same level of effectiveness. But it lays out a pretty astoundingly optimistic scenario where you know it's twenty five grand. It's it's not that much, but it is having a, a demonstrative positive impact. Okay, you still have to guarantee, you know, that the other bit has to be dealt with. The infrastructure and access to uh, hospitals and things has to be dealt with. But that should be dealt with for multiple reasons, not just snake bite. No, I think it's it's, it's kind of brilliant. Yeah, totally. yeah, 
Just a really optimistic paper about Snakebite, really, which is extremely refreshing. Yeah, and very well done, I think. Having these two, uh, well, actually three bits of data recording in terms of what are you doing, as in terms of amount of effort you have put in, numbers of leaflets, cost, stuff like that, questionnaires and attitudes, and then the sort of final aspect, the actual medical uh, situation with numbers of bites and medical outcomes and how uh, swiftly people can get to hospital or are getting to hospital. It's pretty comprehensive. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that just about concludes our episode on venomous snakes, their bites and their spits. Yeah. Should we move on to our species of the bi-week? Absolutely. Yeah, let's do it. So this is by Liu, He, Wang, Bukama, Hu, Li, Che, and Yuan, 2021. A new frog species in the genus Odorana from Yunnan, China, published in Zoo Taxa. I mean, a frog in a snake episode. I mean, it, it works, right? <laughs> yeah, well, it's a bit soon, isn't it, for anyone to have... We did have a look for newly described venomous species, but it seems like we've, all either, we've, done them, we've either done them all or they've been given stupid names, which we're not going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> Plus, I mean, this frog is... I mean, we didn't do much looking after we saw this frog, because this frog... Mm, it's a bad boy. It is a fine quality frog. It's a frog. high-end frog. Now, they're called odorous frogs, frogs of the genus Odorana. Because they stink. Yes, they do stink, which, you know, why do they stink? I couldn't find a concrete answer for that. Apparently, they smell like rotting Maybe fish. Maybe they just stink to us. Maybe maybe they smell great to other Yeah, frogs. well, there was some suggestion that this stench might be because, well, as an anti-predator strategy, like, hey, I'm not a frog. I'm a rotting fish. <laughs> Don't eat me. But the other one, I did read somewhere that some people reckon that these specific smells might be a means of the frogs recognizing other members of their species. Like, my days, that stench. You must be a female of my species. How are you getting on? Which is the other kind of theory. But I didn't see much evidence yeah. for either. All, all we know <laughs> is that they stink. A mystery, then. And they really stink. And the genus Odorana... I mean, how do you even measure stink? Yeah, they're generally found in forests in East and Southeast Asia. But there are some species which are cave dwellers. So these really nice cast limestone environments, finding homes in and amongst the kind of recesses of cast limestone, which is nice. And there's about 50-odd species, sorry, 59 species, up until this little frog came along. And uh, this represents number 60 in the genus. And it's found on the Chinese-Myanmar border, which is an area known to be a hotspot for biodiversity. And being in a cast landscape, it helps to be sort of small, so you can crawl around in, in cracks of the rock. Males being a wee bit smaller than females, so males we're looking at like 50 to 55 millimeters svl with the females jumping up to like 80 or even 90 Big. so um yeah i don't think this species is actually associated with the limestone environments it's just its congeners that are ah this is a little forest dweller is it I believe so yeah and looking at the the type locality photographs quite interesting because um it's this dulong river in uh mm -hmm. Shan national reserve in yunnan um it's quite interesting because like it's obviously this 
really beautiful forested hillside, but it has got a massive paved path going across it. So it's obvious that this place gets quite a lot of tourists. It's a big waterfall. And the frogs were found just kind of chilling on the trees at the bottom of this waterfall, just uh, jamming around, enjoying the spray. (laughs) Oh, boy. And what frogs. They are beautiful. They are, yeah. It's quite, quite an impressive beast, actually. I mean, how would you describe it? It's got nice... It's got a very duckweed green top. Duckweed. Yeah, duckweed. That's what I would use to describe its top. Duckweed green. It looks like it's covered in tiny duckweed. Yeah, and nice brown stripy legs, yellow belly, Mm -hmm. yellow sort of underneath the arms. Nice forearm green colour to it as well. Kind of looks like a really jazzy version of our common frog, to be honest. Um, Yeah, and, you know, sides being this transition from a darker... A darker brown to the the yellowy underneath, with almost leopard spots. Hmm. Yeah, there's a leopardy element to it. Right. Hmm. Yeah. And what have they called it? They've called it Odorana dulongensis, i.e. from Dulong. From Dulong. Uh, the specific epithet refers to the type locality, Dulongjiang village in Gongshan County, Nujiang Prefecture, Yunnan Province, China. So yeah, it's only known from that type locality so far. Although it's thought it probably also occurs inside Myanmar. And they found these frogs at night, as I said, and they were sitting on branches along this Dulong River, chilling on the evergreen broadleaf forests, chilling yeah. on the leaves. Yeah. So it's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful little stinky frog. They don't mention anywhere in here what it actually smells like, which I was a little bit disappointed by. Hmm. That is a shame. Yeah. But yeah, that's it. Um, Odorana Dulongensis. Have you got any other business, Ben? Um, nope. Nope, I don't think so. I might do next episode, not this episode. So yeah, I guess I've got one piece of other business. Uh, just to say that we've got a new member of the Herpetological Highlights team, Beth Ellsmore. She's joined us to be our social media uh, social media coordinator, which is very exciting. So um, hopefully we'll have a bit more of a presence on social media. And yeah, we can spread some herpetological interest on those platforms. Uh, so yeah, that also means we've got an Instagram account, which you can now follow. So if you find herp Ooh. underscore highlights, we're on Instagram and we'll be sharing little tidbits, quite a lot of images from the papers that we're talking about and just any other kind of interesting stuff about reptiles. Obviously, as I understand, in the form of images and videos because it's Instagram. We're also still on facebook and twitter which you can find but yeah just to say welcome to the team beth Mm -hmm. yeah Yeah. aside from that i think all that remains to be said is thank you for listening thanks for listening